Thank you so much, Noah. And thank you so much for all of your help and all the preparation that went into today. It's been a pleasure to work with you. Um, thank you everyone for joining today and good afternoon. My name is Elizabeth Matas and I'm the Executive Director of Prisoners Legal Services. And I also co-chair the Delivery of Legal Services Steering Committee of the BBA. And wanna thank the BBA for hosting this and uh, helping us organize this event for today. And I especially wanna thank all our panelists who you will meet in a moment. Um, and, but to start us off, just want to give you some background for our discussion today. Um, we have a really wonderful group of experts and uh, panelists, and our goal today is really to have a robust conversation about this issue, and really by the end to start to get to some areas where we can collaborate, and particularly where the legal community can add its strength and expertise and assistance to moving this issue in a more positive direction. So I'm going to screen share in a minute, just start a very quick uh, slideshow that we'll have and then we'll get right into the panels. So bear with me for a moment. All right, so I think you all know and uh, thank you all so much for registering. Uh, title for today is Understanding Mass and Cast in the Current Crisis of Homelessness. And what we're focusing on is really the interaction of mental health, addiction, and, oh, sorry the um, law in the lives of people without permanent housing. And we've broken this up into two panels. And uh, the first panel will really, we'll start in a few minutes at 1.40. And it will go until 2.30. That really includes a question and answer period that we're doing after the first panel. And then we'll do another after the second panel. And uh, we'll give you, there's a list there of the panelists who are speaking first. And then on the second panel, which was again, more focused on um, the barriers and where we can focus some attention and removing the barriers. And the first panel is really trying to give us a lay of the land. Um, how did we get to this problem and using the, the vantage point of mass and cast, but really talking about the systemic issues that gave rise to mass and cast that continue to feed that problem. And just to give you um, some basic statistics to shape our conversation today, you know, the sweep at Mass and Cast placed around 150 people on average, and these, these figures I'm sure are our estimates, into temporary non-congregate housing. On any given day, there are an estimated 17,000, almost 18,000 people experiencing houselessness in Massachusetts. And of the 6,192 people who are reported as, as counting, as counted as experiencing homelessness in Boston, just in Boston in January 2020, a large majority of those were in emergency shelters, 7% were in transitional housing, about 2% were on the street. Uh, houselessness, mental health, and substance use, of course, um, oftentimes coexist and feed into each other, which is why uh, we want to focus the conversation today on that intersection. And just a few more things. Massachusetts ranks as the third worst state in the country for affordable housing. And we have a shortage of 158,769 affordable rental homes for people with extremely low income. So there's a housing crisis, which has been the subject of many articles and uh, public discussions, but which we have to keep in mind as we're having this conversation. Um, there are an estimated over half a million people just in Massachusetts with serious psychological distress. And then, uh, of course, I wanted to include this slide. Um, according to uh, Sheriff Peter Katushin, who was one of our most, most more progressive sheriffs, 
um, the sheriff of Middlesex County, about 80% to 90% of all those housed in his jail, uh, he says, are there for substance use related issues and about 40% of the first time admissions detox while they're incarcerated. And that's true for many of the counties across the state. It's not particular to that, that county or Middlesex County. And the cost of incarceration per person for FY20 was over $92,000. So keep that in mind also while we're having this discussion around resources and allocation of resources um, to deal with the root problems, root causes of the problems we're talking about. And then finally, opioid deaths have not significantly decreased in Massachusetts in 2016 with around 2,100, actually more than that, deaths per year through 2020, with 2020 actually being a little higher than the previous three years. And the most recent year for which data is available is 2020. Um, I think many people uh, believe that that number, of course, during the pandemic has gone up significantly, but we don't have those figures, um, or I, I wasn't able to get those figures for today. Um, so we do want to just give you a little bit of context and a real story of someone at Mass and Cass. Um, and it's just, so we're just going to play um, a short clip from this to ground us all in the real lives and the people that we are uh, aiming to support. The living conditions in the encampments in the area known as Mass and Cass as deplorable as ever before. The humanitarian crisis at Mass Ave and Millian Cass Boulevard, an area dealing with homelessness and addiction. I have been spending time at Mass and Cass for years concentration of people with substance use disorder, people experiencing homelessness. And in recent years, I think exacerbated by the pandemic, there has been this growing encampment area there. There were complaints from residents, there were complaints from neighborhood associations, and these tents were seen as kind of a light to the neighborhood. And what I've been trying to figure out is what happens to the people who are largely forgotten about. I met Heidi in November. We started talking about her life. She grew up in Weymouth, and she was just kind of like a regular kid. She says that the opioid crisis, where opiates were so available, had such a huge impact. Um, I got addicted to OC. Oh yeah, as far as poisoning, I had to use on also. Um, you know, with OC, the game's very big. Um, and we switched over to like the first job I had with heroin and all the famous sellers in 2018. I think it was like 22. And um, I woke up. <laughs> Jay, Since then, she struggled with drinking, alcohol, and substance abuse throughout her life. I wasn't happy with me anymore. I was, you know, like, committed. I would see the blue people here my daughter and um, I know there's She's been experiencing homelessness for about 10 to 15 years. I've been in and out of like shelters, but programs, and um, I always end up back out here. I'm just gonna fast forward um, to another section.
she has three children and that was the first thing she talked about was her daughters and how she really really just wanted to see them and be a mom to them my orange Thank you, everyone. Um, we're going to, sorry, I wasn't able to increase the volume. I don't, don't know why, but uh, hopefully you were able to read the subtitles as well. And um, I'm going to kick it off to Dan, who um, the Legal Services Center has already mentioned, has a very interesting background, uh, doing a lot of work with veterans now, but has worked in this space as well in the past and has been an incredible partner in putting this together. Thank you so much, Dan and take it away. Thank you, Liz, and thank you to our panelists and attendees. I'll just mention on that video, I think we can probably put the link in the chat because uh, it's a very powerful piece and that way also people can watch it at their convenience. Um, and so uh, we will try before programs end to uh, to forward that, that link along to everybody. Um, uh, so um, I wanna, as, uh, as Liz mentioned, uh, the first thing that we want to do with this initial panel is to create a, a foundation, if you will, by looking at dynamics uh, on the ground with a particular emphasis, uh, emphasis on uh, the intersection of mental health, uh, substance abuse, and houselessness. Um, I'm going to give very brief um, introductions, uh, too brief really, of our panelists. Uh, the introductions will not do justice uh, to their incredible experience and credentials. Uh, but I hope that the questions that I'll pose to our first panel will give them opportunities to say more about their background and skills and values and all that they bring to their work. Uh, so with apologies for brevity, uh, because we want to get to our, our conversation as quickly as possible, I'll first introduce Dr. Samantha Rollins-Pilgrim, who is the Director of Population Health at the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program and an instructor at BU School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Rollins-Pilgrim is duly board certified in internal medicine and public health in general preventative medicine and also certified as an HIV specialist by the American Academy of HIV Medicine. Uh, Cassie Hurd is the executive director of the Material Aid and Advocacy Program. Uh, its mission is to uh, focus on providing unhoused members of the greater, greater Boston community with material aid, access to resources, organizing opportunities and other supports. It engages in advocacy to address the root causes of homelessness and pervasive poverty that give rise to the needs of individuals who are unhoused. Uh, we also uh, are privileged to be joined by Tyshawn Perryman, who's been a recovery coach for the past six years and has over 20 years of experience in direct care and street outreach. Tyshawn holds a BA from North Carolina Central and serves on several community advisory boards. His work uh, has included uh, opportunities as a peer leadership consultant, peer advisor, facilitator, trainer, and public policy advocate, 
And overall, his work focuses on using uh, his lived experience to impact and empower organizations, communities, and individuals to further recovery support services and racial health equity and inclusion. And then our uh, final member of our panel, uh, number one is Devin Larkin, who's Director of Recovery Services Bureau at the Boston Public Health Commission. The Bureau works to ensure the system of care for those affected by substance abuse is as easy to navigate as possible uh, in partnership with an excellent network of community-based providers throughout the city. Uh, the commission offers programs and resources aimed at preventing addictions and supporting the treatment and recovery of those impacted by substance abuse. Uh, so as you can hear, uh, a really tremendous a group of experts who um, I think complement each other uh, given the variety of backgrounds uh, and areas of expertise. Here's the model we'll use for our first uh, panel. I'm gonna ask a couple of questions of each panelist individually. And then I'll turn and ask some questions, throw it out to the panel at large um, so that they can respond to prompts and to each other. And then we'll take some questions uh, in the final 10 minutes or so of the first panel before we pass the baton back to Liz for panel number two. So as Noah indicated at the beginning, please use the Q&A function to, let the, uh, to, to pose your questions. Um, we will get to as many as we can. Uh, you needn't wait till the Q&A period to pose your questions. So as you hear things, that interest you or you want to follow up, please put your questions in the Q&A. So with this roadmap in mind, let me first turn to you, Dr. Rollins-Pilgrim, if that's okay. Um, and I'm gonna ask this same first question of each of our panelists. Um, and then I'll ask you a follow-up question after this uh, question, uh, Dr. Rollins-Pilgrim. So my first question, and, and the other panelists will hear this too, is please just describe what you do and why the work matters. Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me and thanks everyone for coming. So I think in terms of what's most relevant to this panel, what I do is being one of the clinicians who works at the clinic, the small clinic that we have at the Engagement Center on Atkinson Street, which is run by the Boston Public Health Commission, as I'm sure that you'll hear more about from um, Devin Larkin later. And our main focus there is working on drug user health and really disaster medicine for the people who are spending a lot of time in this setting. Um, we are responding to overdoses and preventing death and we're doing that alongside the staff who works at the engagement center and also just like the community um, that's there. A lot of people are responding to overdoses of their peers. Um, we're treating infections that come largely from injecting drugs, and we're also doing a lot of work to try to prevent HIV. And then, of course, also helping anyone who's interested in substance use disorder treatment to access that. And I think, like, in terms of why the work matters, there's just so much need in this area, as you know, as you know, as you've heard about already today, and as you'll hear more from others. Um, and it can be really hard for people who are currently using substances to access care in traditional medical settings. You know, they're not very welcoming places. They can be traumatizing. And we're trying to be a resource for medical care um, where people already are in a setting that's easier to access. Thank you for that um, helpful context. And then just to, as a follow-up, um, what do you see at the intersection of um, uh, folks living without uh, permanent shelter um, where there may be colliding challenges related to substance use and mental health? What are the barriers to stability, recovery, uh, and health? You touched on a little bit, but ask you to, to just dig in a little deeper about your work on that front. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, some of the barriers are just like the 
fact that, you know, everyone's first priority always has to be survival. And when people are um, experiencing homelessness, don't necessarily have a safe place to sleep, to eat, to keep their belongings safe, all of these things, of course, become the highest priority. And it can make caring for one's health fall um, much lower, as is appropriate. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of trauma for sort of these same reasons that can make it harder for people to access care, uh, access medical care, but also access, you know, benefits, access um, just kind of everything that people need to go through life. Um, and I think otherwise, like I mentioned, you know, like our traditional medical settings aren't very inviting, kind of in general, not just for people who are using drugs, but particularly for people who, you know, have a hard time waiting for a long time in a waiting room um, that's enclosed and being around other people. People get a lot of judgment from people in medical settings. Um, that's certainly affecting things as well. And then, you know, there's the substance use disorder itself, which, you know, people may be having cravings or experiencing withdrawal or something that is stopping them from being able to focus on um, taking care of their health needs that they may really want to take care of, but just aren't physically able to do so. Thank you for that. And if I could just sneak in one quick follow-up before um, we'll turn in a second um, to Cassie. Um, uh, there, there may be a lot of assumptions about mental illness and people who are living on the street or um, otherwise unsheltered. Um, what do you see on the ground? What, what are the trends? What are the dynamics with respect to mental health? Yeah, I think, you know, we see a lot of mental illness and a lot of serious mental illness, I think, for kind of multiple reasons, both because sometimes having a serious mental illness can make it more difficult to, you know, have a job, maintain housing, all those things that can lead to people then experiencing homelessness. Also, because substance use disorders and other mental health disorders often coexist. And then just like living um, on the streets or experiencing homelessness can come with a lot of trauma, like really extremely significant trauma, which then in turn can lead to mental illnesses. So we see a lot of um, mental illnesses. And I think, you know, mental health care is a huge need that is often not met or certainly is not met as well as it could be and not to the level that there is need. Thank you so much for that. Let me turn uh, to Cassie and would love for you to uh, pose the same question uh, at, at the outset, uh, which is uh, talk about your work at uh, Material Aid and Advocacy Program. What do you do and why does it matter? Yeah, um, so twice weekly MAP has um, a community drop-in space. Uh, we are in Cambridge, but many of our community members come from the Mass and Cass area in Boston. Um, people are able to come like shop for survival supplies like tents and sleeping bags, um, health, basic healthcare supplies, clothing, things they need to survive on the street and encampments and shelters. Um, folks use computers and phones, access broader resource needs. Um, and for many people, it's the one time they get to like nap or, you know, work on like projects, um, spend time with each other in a space that's free of police and surveillance. Um, we also offer encampment support and sweep support to people. In 2019, we were um, requested by the Boston Users Union um, to do support during the onset of Operation Clean Sweep, and since then have been participating in Cop Watch, in sweep defense and response alongside 
um, the bail fund and the National Lawyers Guild, including the recent sweeps that the Janey administration initiated um, and that Mayor Wu has continued. Um, and beyond that, we host a weekly organizing meeting at our space where our community organizing group is building collective power among unhoused people and underhoused people, people who use drugs, people who are engaged in underground economies or have a relationship to drugs other than abstinence um, towards their vision for collective liberation and community care, um, including supervised consumption sites, um, truly low threshold housing um, and ending systems of harm. We're active members in CIFMA now and offer support to the Boston Users Union. Um, and our work is important because we know people who are surviving homelessness and persistent poverty and the racist war on drugs have the solutions to the systems failure they are experiencing um, that's supported by evidence. Um, and when their self-determination and autonomy are honored and their basic survival needs are met, they can organize for solutions. Thank you, um, Cassie, for um, describing that work in such um, rich detail. Um, so what, if, if for someone who may be new to thinking about how can they contribute or work with populations who are unhoused or may only, you know, have a sense of dynamics on the ground from media coverage or something else, what would you say to help demystify what, what are the biggest uh, misimpressions or misunderstandings um, that, that someone who, who might just be sort of a casual observer might bring um, to the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think people who are unhoused, people who are surviving the war on drugs are, you know, practicing community care and living private lives in public for the most part, right? So like people like all of us experience conflict or crisis um, and we are able to do that in private spaces and people have been forced into public. Um, which is getting smaller and smaller, right? We have a business improvement district now in the new market area. We have fences going up that have been just like bankrolled by Sheriff Tompkins. And so people are either being, you know, caged in or fenced out. And there are being, you know, some solutions are being offered, um, you know, some low threshold temporary housing is being offered, some more permanent, um, but folks really, you know, are doing the best they can with the limited resources that are being made available to them in the circumstances that they are surviving. Thank you, Cassie, that's very helpful. Uh, let me turn things now uh, to Tyshawn Perryman. Uh, Tyshawn, I would invite you to uh, share the same question uh, with you, which is uh, invite you to talk about your work and, and say why it matters. Um, thank you, Daniel. First of all, I wanna say, um, I'm, I'm happy to be here and I appreciate Prison Legal Services, Boston Bar Association for having me and um, all the great panelists of, uh, here today. I appreciate y'all for being here and sharing your expertise. I'm learning a lot already from the uh, first two speakers. Um, my work was, um, I said was, because I just recently stopped working um, as a recovery coach um, from BMC. But when I was working as a recovery coach, uh, I, uh, for the past six years, I worked on Mass Ave with um, doing uh, research on recovery coaching and seeing the effectiveness of recovery coaches as it relates to different issues that, uh, that homeless people may carry. What I did was as a recovery coach was lead, guide, support, navigate um, 
break uh, support people and breaking barriers to uh, getting um, this, the type of resources they need, the wraparound services that they need. Um, then I work with um, connected people to HIV prep and uh, other services. Um, I work with uh, getting people into uh, detoxes, transitional living, housing. Um, so anything, any dynamic of a person's um, life, a homeless person's life, especially when it's with substance use disorder and any type of support that they need, I did it. Um, I supported them in that process. Um, uh, lots of interventions. Um, yeah. Thanks, Tyshawn. Um, um, very powerful work. So just to build on that, um, what, from your work with community members, what are some of the barriers, the biggest barriers to stability, uh, recovery, uh, and health? Well, I'm going to start off with the biggest barrier first. The biggest barrier is that, you know, we, like, on MasterCast, uh, for me, I call it the mecca of recovery, right? That we have BMC, we have Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, we have the Boston Public Health Commission, we have like uh, we have two shelters, we have um, there's so many different various resources down there. It's unbelievable, right? But what we don't have is, and, and what's really missing, the biggest barrier is we don't have an organic system, right? We don't have a system in which in which people feel like the human being is going to get healthcare, like the human being is going to get support. What we have is a system, uh, old traditional system that is built upon um, organizational power structure, which is kind of big to say um, without really breaking it down. But um, the, the issue is, is what uh, Samantha was talking about is that people get stuck. They, we have this huge clinic but people get stuck there at the clinic waiting. They get stuck um, waiting in line to get uh, at the food pantry. They get they they get out of prison, they get out of jail, and they need to get a job, but they get stuck because they don't have a social security card. Or they don't have an ID. They can't get an ID without a social security card. They can't get those things because they don't have a mailing address. So, so the system is, we have all these organizations and systems, but they have to find a way to kind of like come into cohesion and uh, support people immediately at the time of where they're at. So meaning that some people are too mentally ill to get up and go to a six month away psychotherapist appointment, right? They're too mentally ill, they just don't get there. And so what we have to do is really, when we're talking about supporting people with high substance use disorder, handicapped substance, um, mental illness, is we have to bring our organizations to them right where they're at. Meaning that we need, um, we need not just um, safe consumption sites and these things like that. We do need those, but we also need our legal advocates and people that uh, uh, help and support to not say, okay, come to our organization, come to our Zoom meeting at three o'clock, but we actually need to meet them where they're at and set up, um, set up shop on Mass and Cash, set up shop inside the shelter, set up shop inside the uh, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless so that people can come and sign up and then and show them that we care, give them that human connection, bring the, bring the, um, the professional environment to where they're at 
and that way we can people can start um, feeling good about and trusting the, the individual workers that that are um, supporting them. That's what a recovery coach does. We meet people with that, and we we wake them up, we call them, we talk to them. Uh, we we yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Tyshawn. Um, that um, I think provides a lot of really useful frameworks um, for the our, our conversation today about how people can get plugged in to meet people where they are um, and to break down these silos and barriers. And so that that framing is extraordinarily helpful and I appreciate um, um, your, your presenting it in that way to us. Um, let me now uh, uh, turn uh, to Devin and we'll begin with the same question, which is talk about your work at the Bureau and the Commission um, and, and tell us why it matters, please. Sure. So the Bureau provides uh, programming across three different campuses in Boston, but as it relates to this discussion, um, we oversee a program called the Engagement Center, which is located on Atkinson Street and the A Hope Drug, Drug User Health Program, which is located on Albany Street. Um, and so as I think most people know, the Engagement Center was sort of central to the encampment that arose during COVID on Mass Cass, um, was the touch point for most people to have restroom access, um, medical and behavioral health touch points, um, access to snacks, coffee, just really the, the bare minimum, um, but you know some some items to help people sort of sur survive the pandemic. Um, we opened the engagement center in response to the crowding that we were seeing on on mass casts, um, and by surveying the community, surveying the community, and asking them if we provided a space for you, what would you want it to look like, and what would you want there? And people came up with um, sort of all the things that we were able to provide. Um, at the engagement center. Now, I think most people who have been down in the neighborhood know the engagement center has become very overcrowded. Um, the demand for, you know, services um, that are willing to meet people where they are at um, far exists, far out, outnumbers the number of services that actually exist. Um, and so, you know, sorry, my door is open and there's people in the hallway. <laughs> um, and so why the work that we do, why is it important? I don't think there's any more marginalized group or more vulnerable group than people who are experiencing um, houselessness and a serious mental illness or substance use disorder. This is the most stigmatized group, uh, most vulnerable group that I think that we need to serve and focus on in Boston. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's we really see it as our role to bring the voices of some of these people who have been forgotten and lost to other places to be able to advocate for things like uh, community drop-in space for more low-threshold housing um, to be able to sit in sort of leadership circles and make sure that the, the things that people are actually asking for on the ground are heard. Thank you, Devin. You, you touched on, on, on a piece of this follow-up question, so I'll just focus on maybe one part of it, which is there have been a lot of uh, new approaches or new new rollout of new new responses uh, to the crisis. Um, you know, depending on one's perspective, those have had varying degrees of success. Um, and what what are some of the lessons learned um, from from the recent efforts and this attention that um, has been driven on this particular geographic area? But as Liz said at the outset, you know, we don't um, mass and cast is a piece of a much bigger, more complex puzzle around the lack of of housing for people. So what are some of the lessons learned from, from these recent um, episodes? Sure. So, I mean, Housing First isn't a new initiative, um, but I would say that, you know, in Boston, 
we have not historically had harm reduction providers working closely with housing providers. Um, and so I've never been able to refer into housing circles before now. Um, and so because you have all this expertise and lived experience within this community uh, and within the harm reduction community, we are able to help housing navigators sort of understand how to provide services to people when they are newly housed or on the housing pathway um, to be able to achieve much more success. And so what I've seen, I think, over the last three months are baby steps um, to sort of break down those silos a bit more and really train up the workforce that, that does provide CSPEC services um, or housing navigation to understand that people who are experiencing street you know, homelessness and a substance use disorder can be housed, can do great, you know, can have a housing pathway and wraparound supports. Um, there, there is misinformation out there that these people were unhousable. And that's a quote that I've gotten, you know, um, across, you know, many different departments at this, that it's just not possible to house these people, that landlords won't accept them, um, that you'll never get through their core mitigation. And that's not true. And it, it can take a long time and it takes a lot of hustle. That's what the clients tell me, that they like providers who hustle. Um, but you can do it. And I would say, you know, you know, I've learned a lot in the last couple of months, too, about how important it is to have good legal advocacy, you know, with the court system and just how complicated uh, in order for people to really achieve success with housing. Thank you, Devin. Um, and, and collectively, you all have laid a, a very um, compelling foundation for, for some of the topics um, that our, our second panel is going to pick up, certainly about how um, um, uh, legal advocates and other members of the advocacy community can um, can work together and can and can fit into uh, these various systems, but also maybe reinvent some systems along the way with the help of all the players. So let me um, put out some questions to the panel as a whole um, and invite you to respond as you see fit and to react to each other. So um, we've talked a fair amount about, you've talked a fair amount about organizational approaches and um, population-informed um, services. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about sort of the one-on-one, -on -one, if you will. Um, if um, there is a legal advocate who's undertaking, you know, a first time ever pro bono work on behalf of someone who's unsheltered, it could be help getting an ID, it could be a social security matter, it could be access to housing, whatever the topic is. Um, what, um, what are some key principles to keep in mind when you're working with a population where there may be, certainly there's lack of housing, but there's also maybe underlying cross-current challenges related to substance use or mental health or both? Um, what, what, would you, what would you share with that person who's new to the work that would make for a successful interaction and trust-building relationship? I guess I'll go uh, being a recovery coach. <laughs> Um, what, um, what I would say a platinum rule, right? Treat people the way that they want to be treated. Um, meaning that, you know, you know, the questions and everything is all about that person. It's not about you. It's not about what you think. It's not about how you feel. It's all about how can I lead, guide, help, and support you today? What is, what is your issue? What do you need? Do you need an ID? Do you need social, um, a social security card? So it's the platinum rule, just treating people that the way that they want to be treated, and I think get along fine. Thanks, Tyshawn. Would invite other members of the panel to uh, to add uh, or respond. Uh, 
I can go. I was. I would just say um, to always ask people sort of what it is that they what means that it is that they have have met. I think there's a lot of conversations that take place over what we think is going to be best for people to solve problems sort of on the ground. But you really have to start by asking you know the person what is going to help meet your needs today, and then we can work from there. And if that's a meal and a snack and a conversation today, then so be it. But that's really where we have to start. Um, if we're going to truly meet people where they're at. Thank you. I guess what I'd add, which is really just building on what Tayshawn and Devin have already said is just, or, or maybe even just rephrasing is just like really not expecting things to necessarily go the way that you would usually expect them to, or as they have in your experience in working with other people and trying to kind of take a little bit of a backseat and let the person who you're working with individually kind of guide um, what they need and what would be helpful and just kind of being okay with spending a lot of time building a relationship that doesn't necessarily immediately feel like you're doing the thing that you're setting out to do, but kind of lays the foundation to be able to do more later. Thank you all. Yeah, go ahead, Cassie. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I, I agree entirely with what everyone has said. And I also just think sort of like, you know, understanding that people know what their priorities and goals are. And like, even if it doesn't seem to be like what one of us or a provider would be prioritizing or you're prioritizing, you know, like it is their goal and it's important to meet that goal. Um, and sort of perhaps like an offering of information um, and being as transparent as possible about sort of options um, and next steps towards the goal or, you know, other like barriers that people might have in terms of like the legal realm. Well, Daniel, uh, I just wanted to ask the real brief was, um, number two rule I would, I would say is know yourself, right? Know your, what, know your biases, know, um, what issues you have, what, know, know how you think and allow yourself to get caught up or your feelings and your emotions to get caught up in the person mm -hmm. you're dealing with. So definitely um, self-reflection is um, a necessity. Thank you all for those, those very wise words. Um, I just wanna pause and encourage um, uh, attendees to put any questions in the Q&A, keep them coming. Um, our colleague, uh, Rachel from Prisoners Legal Services is gonna continue to monitor and we'll share questions. Um, we've set aside about uh, 10 plus minutes at the end of this first panel to ensure that we get to as many questions as possible. So please submit them. Um, uh, if I could, um, this question, maybe I'll start with you um, if it's okay. I'm riffing a little bit off of, of some of the, the, the ideas that we uh, discussed in advance, but, um, for Dr. Rollins-Pilgrim, and it's a question that I also saw um, was maybe on the mind of one attendee, what does street mental health services look like, if you will? Um, what does it look like to provide mental health services um, when someone lacks permanent housing or even shelter of, of the most basic kind? Yeah, I mean, some of the things that I'd be curious for anyone else, what they know about what's going on, how other organizations are doing things, but some of the things that we're doing is that we have um, counselors and psychiatrists who do outreach work, so who come to the engagement center, who go to other places and meet people in other encampments and on the street and um, connect with them there. And so from doing things from talk therapy in that setting through Medicaid or 
including medication management as well. And then I think another thing in addition to that, like sort of what we think of as the typical mental health care, I think just like providing a lot of case management services, recovery coach services, just like a lot of additional support to people um, that goes kind of beyond the what we think of as the like clinical mental health services are really important too. Thank you. And did anyone else on our panel want to uh, chime in on that? Devin, yes. So I would say that um, in a lot of ways, and I'm a I'm a technically a mental health provider, but um, in a lot of ways, there is no group that's more difficult, I think, to get out of the four walls and onto the sidewalk than behavioral health providers uh, across the board. <laughs> um, and that's been a huge challenge for us, but we have seen, thanks to Healthcare for the Homeless and some who have who stepped up and really increased their behavioral health FTEs sort of on the ground and outside. Um, you know, I think we're seeing, seeing a lot more success in sort of getting people to try more traditional care. Um, we do have a couple of street psychiatrists that do rotate through, and I think that's been really, um, it's been a huge, huge positive change, at least sort of on my end, um, when we do have people who are experiencing crisis and can get them to consider coming inside. Um, but I think that's one thing that we all have to work on uh, and continue to push is that it's really important for behavioral health folks to see their role as being outside the four walls. It's not just about a 50 minute hour in the clinic. Um, there's a lot more work that can happen sort of on the ground and it's about building relationships. We have a lot of people with very complex trauma that the first thing you really have to do is just start to build trust. Um, from, from a uh, recovery coach um, angle, what I would do is for, for behavioral health, mental health people, is try to connect them with as many services and as people as I can, right? Just knowing that, you know, just trying to get them into uh, Solomon California or the Letterman Center or any time, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a process, it takes time. So I connect people as many with as many services and different um, case managers and different, um, uh, make as many different appointments as I can. And so when you give people a lot of different options to work with, then something has to come through. So it's like, you know, it's a, it's a, not only is street life homelessness survival, but it's almost like when you're working and navigate and support people in the system, you have to be as savvy as, um, as you can be. Thank you all. Um, Terrific, terrific um, framing to help people think about this work. So let me sneak in one other um, general question for the panel, and then um, we will uh, turn over uh, um, the conversation to some panels, uh, some questions coming in from attendees. So each of you in some way touched on this, but I think it would be good to now sort of put it, to, to underscore it uh, and to expand when we think about uh, the role that legal advocates can play. So. Bluntly, where can more legal muscle make the biggest difference? Um, we want as much as possible as lawyers and other legal advocates to be humble and not to assume that the law is a solution to something as complex as um, the lived experience um, and the needs of people who are unhoused. But it is an important tool in the toolkit. Um, so with humility, um, I'll ask the question, where where can legal advocates make the biggest difference? Where are the biggest gaps? Where are you most desperate to see people come in and help with legal expertise? I'll go. Mm -hmm. 
so the first the first thing I see is once again bluntly is having legal advocates in up up close and personal with the in, with the people. So that means that if you if you're not a uh, um, if you hiring recovery coach legal advocates, that's something, right? Just making them something, right? But having them outreach, you know, um, outreach to the community. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is is making sure that information is a lot more prevalent in the web. Um, a lot of my struggles in my personal recovery would have would have been reconciled had I had the presence of legal services and legal support and advocacy been in in my in my face, right? So that means just a, a, a type of campaign or something like that in which you say, "Here we are. We're here to help you," and that and it's resonating and it's replicating um, itself. Um, that that's all I have for right now. Thank you. Thank you. Others on our panel? Yeah, I'll just echo what Tyshawn said. I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things that has come out of the last sort of six months of attention, um, sort done on mass casts um, and different interventions that were, that were um, went into place was that it was really helpful for us to connect with CPCS um, more closely sort of for the first time. Um, and to know that like, if there's an attorney looking for an individual uh, for representation, or if there's a, a person on the street that's that doesn't remember who their attorney is, that there's a way for us to sort of loop people together, um, sort of to to better you know manage the court system. I think one of the things that we saw during COVID was um, that a lot of people obviously missed their Zoom court <laughs> sessions because um, it wasn't really it just wasn't. Really encampment to sort of keep up with that. Uh, we had a lot of people with default warrants that weren't more really interested in, in getting things taken care of and to moving on to a pathway, but didn't really know where to start. Um, and that's one way that I think we're able to make some change for people. Mm -hmm. That's excellent um, to know of that, that uh, connection point um, that hopefully will continue. Any other thoughts uh, from our other panelists about where there are gaps in legal advocacy and where the biggest difference might be made. Yeah, I have I have some thoughts. I'm on the it's Todd Kerensky here. I'm on the second panel, but I might chime in here if that's all right for a moment. Um, I think it's really important for those involved in the legal community to understand where and how much the legal and criminal justice system impact addiction treatment, especially as it pertains to, as Liz pointed out, approximately in some cases, 80% of those incarcerated have addiction. And we know that when people leave incarceration, they're at particularly high risk for return to use and fatal overdose. Um, so there's a lot of work that can be done around advocacy related to how people who are um, in criminal violation are, are treated in terms of providing evidence-based treatment in incarcerated settings and linking them to evidence-based treatment when they leave. We know that works, and I'll talk more about that, I think, in the next session, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't include that here. Um, there's a lot of advocacy that can occur around um, what happens to people who are released from incarceration but have returned to use and how that gets managed. Um, just as a, a brief sort of simile, we would not incarcerate, we would not, we would not um, make someone's uh, um, uh, release contingent upon them taking their, their anti-hypertension medications. And if they got hypertensive and went to the doctor, we wouldn't advocate reincarcerating them. 
And so um, thinking about addiction as a medical disease and not a moral failing um, and not a, and thinking about how we treat, treat medical and psychiatric illness in the context of the criminal justice system is totally paramount. I'll stop there. Todd, I'm really glad you jumped in, and it's in the spirit of the panel, which is uh, we we are we are one whole program, and part of our goal is to encourage more conversation and to hear more voices, um, so that these these dots can be connected, and the calls to action, such as the one you just shared, um, are, are what this is all about. So I'm glad you chimed in. Um, before moving on, I just wanted to make sure whether um, uh, Sam or Cassie had anything else to share. So. Um, uh, let me invite uh, our colleague from uh, uh, Prisoners Legal Services, Rachel Sherekis, to, uh, if you want to read out a question, why don't we start with whatever question you curated at the top of your list um, for this panel. Yes, absolutely. And thank you to all of our panelists so far. This discussion has been great. The first question that I see is, how would you persuade an average middle-class resident of the Commonwealth that solving the homelessness or mental health crisis, particularly at Mass and Cass, should be a key priority for our state and local governments and is something worth investing more taxpayer dollars in? Hello. <laughs> It's, 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 um, I think um, there was a, uh, we have a, uh, I'm not sure if he's a medical doctor, but a man named Gary Langos, Langos at um, Boston Medical Center. He talked about how um, when, you know, people come off the, 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 the highway and they come to Mass Ave, um, he said that, you know, it would be great to not have that look, to not see needles out, to not see people hanging out. So, um, to not see needles all over the place and what have you. So what needs to change is it doesn't just magically change, right? So we need support. We need to build safe consumption sites. We need tax dollars to go towards safe consumption sites. We need tax dollars to go towards housing because the people obviously need housing, right? They need, they need a place um, to... Uh, they're homeless. So every every work and every activity that they do is going to be done out in the public. If we want to change their activities and work, then we need to put find out a, a place to have them do it outside of the public sector, which means that we need tax dollars and support from um from the community to do that. That's that's something I would say. Yeah, I strongly agree with that. Um I don't know that there's a lot to add to that. I, I would say that um, to provide medical psychiatric addiction services is costly. And uh, I hope that those uh, on this call will think about where money should be invested in these resources, especially as money comes into the system related to um, the Purdue Pharma settlement and other sources of, of money that are coming into the system. Um, I don't think it's controversial anymore to suggest that public funds go towards safe consumption facilities. Um, I see it as a must. It's a moral obligation, um, and uh, I think you know to the extent that that we should talk about it, we should do it and and advocate for it and make it happen. I just wanted like 
totally amplify what Todd said and also just that we have been investing in, you know, criminalizing and punishing people for so long and it's so ineffective and traumatic and, you know, only makes our communities less safe and people less safe and that, you know, investing in solutions that we know are rooted in, you know, um, people's health and well-being and our collective health and well-being um, is, you know, for the betterment of everyone. And so we just need to like, you know, pivot where we are spending our funds um, towards care. Um, this is Carrie Burke. I'm on the second panel. I just want to quickly add that I think um, I agree with what everybody said, but I think for, for the individual who like doesn't live in the Boston area, never has seen mass and cast, does not affect them, um, is not connecting with the issue at all. Um, one area that people do connect with is, is considering where their tax dollars are going. So how much does it cost to incarcerate people, for instance, which is where, where people are ending up. It's a lot more expensive than it is to provide shelter and treatment for people. Um, it's a lot more expensive to provide treatment for people who end up in the ER as opposed to um, having ongoing services provided to them. So if they're concerned about kind of how this is trickling down to them and in their daily lives and how their tax dollars are getting spent, I think that's kind of one of the, maybe a good talking point to focus on if like the moral talking point doesn't resonate, um, which I think that probably resonates with most of us here. Agree. Tyshawn also correctly pointed out earlier that we need to provide the services where people are in that moment and treat them as they are, as human beings. I'll make one additional comment as it pertains to that, as a, and especially as how we think about how money gets spent. We need to identify and treat addiction and psychiatric illness before people become homeless and before they are on mass and caps. So that includes investing in communities outside of downtown Boston. So people do not enter into that, the narrative that we're here to talk about and to fix. To fix. We, must, we must reduce the demand for, that, for the services in that community by treating everybody in the Commonwealth. Um, and I, I think Boston gets a, rightfully a lot of the attention, but a lot of the people that end up on mass and casts are using drugs, severe mental illness in various communities in the Commonwealth. And, and don't find treatment and end up on mass and cast. Yeah, that, that's what I wanted to say um, was that, you know, the, the opioid epidemic, in fact, in fact, that the opioid epidemic is not on mass and cast. Once again, that's the public homeless houselessness. Most people overdose in suburban areas in the home. And that was, that is actually where the opioid epidemic is at. So if we're talking about, you know, trying to talk to someone that's outside of Boston and uh, tell them, you know, that, you know, your tax dollars should go towards supporting individuals. And I think that, you know, um, um, I think that kind of painting that picture and showing that picture of all the suburban, um, is I think the, in 2020, there was over 20, uh, 50,000 opioid deaths in um, Massachusetts. 
um, and, and most of them come from um, suburban um, um, areas. This is where your tax dollars go to to uh, uh, stop um, individuals from come from dying of um, of opioids. That's that's why your money is important. Thank you all. I didn't know if anyone else was going to jump in. Um, I'm sorry, Devin. Again, just sort of to just to underscore the the stigma piece. I mean, I don't think you know, as somebody who does provide services down here, nobody wants somebody would prefer to get their wounds sort of tended to on the sidewalk when they're in crisis than in the community where they, you know, might call home when they're not in crisis. That's not mm -hmm. what people to feel that way, uh, that they have to come here to get, you know, their basic needs met when they're, when they're in crisis. And that when I, I hear from health centers all the time, we just don't have patients in our, in our health center. And then sort of when you show them like the, the map of overdoses around Boston, it, it sort of silences people and they to say like, well, why aren't you seeing these patients? Because they're in your community. You know what I mean? Uh, people have, even within Boston, um, don't seem, there's a concentration of people living a public, living out their crisis publicly here, but it is in every corner of the city. Thank you. Um, yes. Um, I think we're going to try to sneak in a lightning round question, Rachel. So um, if you want to ask a question and then we'll, we'll, we'll give our panel one minute uh, total to, uh, to, to respond. But if you want to sneak in one more. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a question in the chat on what the role of the prosecutor is in helping with the problems that need to be addressed in the Mass and Cass area and what specifically a prosecutor can do to help, if anything. In one minute. On this. Yeah. Um, so I, I am uh, going to speak kind of more specifically, obviously from a defense perspective, I'm with CPCS um, when my time comes. Um, I do think that, um, you know, prosecutors should um, be just as educated as everybody else in the science of addiction. Um, prosecutors should understand the medical model of addiction um, and recovery um, addiction as a chronic and relapsing disease. And to whatever extent you can, um, you know, choose not to prosecute very clear, uh, charges that are very clearly related to addiction. Um, I'll get into kind of this a little bit more, so I don't wanna take up too much time, but that's kind of primarily what I would do. I would also say, um, collaborating with, just as Devin said, you know, getting to know the services in the area um, that um, the people that you're prosecuting consume. So know, know what's out there, know what they're engaging in um, and what options they might have short of uh, incarceration or probation or whatever it is you're looking at. So, and so lastly, that's gonna support, if we're worried about kind of like the public safety perspective, like public health, Good public health practice ultimately is going to support public safety. Mm -hmm. Just as somebody who does, this is Julie also from the second panel, but as somebody who helps people seal criminal records, I also would suggest to prosecutors that you be very judicious in uh, deciding what you end up prosecuting and really look to the long-term consequences and what the implications are gonna be for individuals. So, you know, uh, exactly as Carrie said, um, I don't think you need to be deep in the science, but you do need to be deep in the consequences. 
Thank you all. I think we're gonna we're gonna pause there. Um, I don't think you. Uh, let me just. Uh, I know we're in a Zoom context, so whether you do a clapping hands or an actual hands, I'm just gonna say thank you to our first panel um, for sharing expertise and passion and experience. Um, really powerful. Um, uh, uh, so thank you, thank you uh, to each and every one of you, and also for other panelists who very um, more than justifiably um, uh, joined the conversation. We're glad you did. It adds to the to the, to the logic of the program. So I'm glad that uh, that um, several of you um, uh, shared your voice on these first sets of questions. Liz, I'm now gonna pass the baton back to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dan, and to all the panelists and panel number one, and please do uh, stick around because we're going to continue this discussion. Um, I'm just gonna jump right into um, having you all introduce yourself by telling us what you do now and um, similar to the first panel. So if you can please, I'll start with Todd, describe what you do um, and why this work matters to you. Thank you so much for having me on the panel. Um, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, there's not any more important work that we do than this. Uh, I'm Dr. Todd Kerensky, I'm a general internist and I'm also board certified in addiction medicine. I did my addiction medicine training at Boston Medical Center and I've worked in so many settings of addiction treatment that it's hard to keep track of, but I worked at the methadone clinic that was shown on the video earlier. Um, I've worked in Brockton, I've worked at, in Chelsea, in, um, anyway, uh, I, at this point, I, I uh, am the medical director of addiction medicine at South Shore Health. I also am the medical director of the methadone clinic in Weymouth, and um, I'm the president of the Massachusetts Society of Addiction Medicine. Um, and as I said, I do this because um, we know what works in treating, especially opioid use disorder, and um, we can impact people's lives, we can save lives, and we can make them productive members of society. Um, we need to fight stigma around treatment and provide treatment, which I'll talk about when the time comes. Thank you, Todd, really appreciate that. And um, Carrie, I know you gave us a little bit already, but if you could talk about what your day-to-day -day is like, and what your, uh, how this work is in your world. Sure. Um, so I'm Carrie Burke. I'm the Director of Social Services Advocacy at the Public Defender Division at CPCS. Um, so very briefly, we have staff, social workers, we call them social services advocates in every office. We work as part of the defense team um, on achieving kind of immediate goals for clients, immediate meeting immediate needs, and also assisting in um, the litigation of cases, sentencing advocacy and mitigation. Um, most relatedly to, to the work here, um, you know, the work that we do for client, many, obviously many, many of our clients have substance use disorder, um, mental illness, and are dealing with different levels of housing insecurity or lack of housing. Um, the work that we do is important because we are really focusing on the individualized needs of our clients. Um, we're, we're approaching this from a holistic perspective um, to both resolve our client's criminal case, um, but also we are resolving them in a way that meets their needs beyond their criminal case and often is getting at the root cause of, of how they have interfaced with the police or the criminal legal system. Um, in this case, it's substance use disorder, frequently homelessness. Um, so the hope being that our clients are going to be less likely to um, encounter the police if we are able to meet the kind of basic needs 
um, that led them to us in the first place. Thank you, Carrie, that's great. And uh, next, Liz Alfred, Attorney Alfred, um, if you could please talk about uh, what you do on a daily basis and your intersection with this work as well. Yeah, so um, my name is Liz Alfred. I am an attorney at the, in the Worcester office of Central West Justice Center. Uh, I do eviction defense in Worcester County. So I do a lot of um, representing people who are being evicted uh, in the hopes that maybe they won't be evicted, right? Um, and I do uh, subsidy terminations. I do um, people who are applying for subsidies who are denied. Uh, we do those kinds of cases here. And I also do a lot of emergency assistance shelter, which is the, the shelter program that's for technically for kids, right? It's, it's for the needy child is what they call it in the regulation. Um, and so in Massachusetts, we kind of have like two sort of shelter approaches and one of them involves families with children and one of them involves, um, you know, unaccompanied adults. And so sometimes uh, with this particular population, we, if, if, you know, there's some mental health stuff going on or some substance use disorder stuff and when a family is in shelter, you know, those are very surveilled spaces <laughs> and uh, DCF will get called and sometimes kids are removed and um, you lose your right to shelter if your kid is removed, right? And so, uh, and it happens very quickly. Um, sometimes we can talk them into waiting until after the 72 hour hearing. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Uh, that's more likely to happen if there's an attorney involved. And so, and then, you know, if you don't get your kid back within 60 days, then under the rules, you're then barred from being in family shelter again for 12 months. And so that also has a huge effect on whether or not you can get your kids back. Um, and so we do that kind of work. We also, um, I personally have had people who uh, are in recovery who are being denied um, housing and, and we do those types of, of cases. And I think in, in the Commonwealth, there's not enough of that type of representation. Thank you so much, Liz. That was really helpful context. And Attorney McCormick. Sorry, should have that cursor lined up there. Um, well, first, I'm actually not an attorney. I'm not um, admitted to practice here in the Commonwealth. Uh, and I practice before all administrative agencies. Um, and uh, that's basically what I do. I represent uh, clients who have been denied access to income. Um, TAFDC and Social Security and EADC um, have been denied access to food, um, food, SNAP, uh, food stamps or SNAP in particular, health coverage, and then also opportunity access. They've been denied opportunity access because of their criminal records or their debt um, or some of the other ways in which we criminalize the response to poverty. Um, I sort of, uh, as a one person uh, here at the Legal Services Center doing the public benefits work, we also do a lot of innovation with the delivery of service. Um, uh, including where we provide service. And I really take to heart the points that are being made about uh, bringing our services. So some of the ways in which we do that is that as part of the Legal Services Center work, we, we educate and mentor clinical students, but I also work with um, social service providers, with medical providers, with case managers, and with fellow advocates, including folks who volunteer with the Lawyers Clearinghouse at the various clinics that actually go into um, the homeless sites, homelessness provision sites, in standing up for clients that they're working with. And then we also, I also do a lot of work in, uh, sharing education and resources where with Know Your Rights work, uh, Know Your Rights um, sessions, 
library drop-in hours pre-pandemic, we were in the library uh, working in partnership with uh, Pine Street Inn uh, Social Worker and with uh, Victory Programs, um, harm reduction. Um, COVID pushed us to Zoom. We're hoping to go back in person and to be there, but also collaborating closely with service providers like Boston Children's Hospital, with the Horizons for Homeless Children, uh, with Union Capital Boston and other community-based um, organizations, just to name a few. And um, our adversaries in that work are uh, the complex web of rules that everybody faces. So a number of folks have already talked about this. Uh, Liz highlighted it with respect to the housing work. Um, Tayshawn mentioned it with respect to you know, the kinds of supports that he's providing to individuals. But these rules are intended to be very severe and in their actual impact um, on the folks, their disparate impact on the folks that are subject to them, uh, can accurately be described as racist and sexist and ableist and homophobic and xenophobic. Uh, and all of these forces apply onto our clients. Um, and our adversaries are also, frankly, even though they're supposed to be pro se friendly, the agency's administering. And so we have a ton of political hostility to these programs and to the folks relying upon them. Um, and um, this sort of uh, trickles down, the pandemic has only increased this, this trickles down into um, and you know we see this highlighted most often in the stereotype of the welfare queen, right? So this is some that we've talked about this a little bit already. But you know we get bureaucratic backlogs, or we get um, uh, inflexibility, we get indifference, we get a lack of accountability, and that is why the work is so important um, because people cannot navigate these systems by themselves. We've made them too complicated. Um, and it just compounds the hardship and humiliation that people uh, trying to access services experience in doing so. And I just wanna give a really quick statistic from the social security context. Um, the cash assistance you get from SSI is $955 per month. People who don't have SSI are relying on as little as uh, $360 per month. It makes a huge difference, almost triple. But 75% of people applying for social security benefits are denied with that representation. If you have representation, that flips. Um, so it makes a huge difference. Um, and I think this is part of why we're here, right? We're talking to all of you uh, in the bar about some ways in which you can contribute to those success rates. Thank you so much, Julie. It was wonderful. Okay, so we're gonna get into some questions and we're gonna circle back uh, to Todd. And my first question for you is, how does incarceration perpetuate the cycle of substance use, homelessness, um, and mental health issues, mental health crisis, and what services or policy changes would you recommend to, um, to address it? You're on mute, Todd. Sorry about that. Great question. There's a lot here, so I'll, I'll try to keep this brief, but I do wanna hit the highlights. I think understanding the scope of this problem as we've talked about a little bit thus far, uh, nationwide, there's about a half a million people incarcerated simply due to drug violations. Uh, especially in Boston, you know, as we said, about 80% of people who are incarcerated have addiction. Um, but what does this mean for the people who have addiction? The first of which is that people that are incarcerated experience, experience trauma related to such incarceration. And we know that, uh, at least historically, Massachusetts did not provide addiction treatment inside places of incarceration. That is changing. That is an important public health policy or, or public policy, really, that is a must if we are going to end the opioid epidemic. Um, so when people leave incarceration, we know that they're much more likely to overdose than if, than if they were not coming out of incarceration. This is basically an indisputable medical fact. 
We know that the first two weeks after release from incarceration is the highest risk time, with people's risk being somewhere between 12 and 40 times the general population. Um, so what can we do about this fact that, that you know, there's a lot of people who are incarcerated who have addiction, and when, when they leave after experiencing trauma and not being treated, they end up with overdose and overdose death. The first, we know a lot about this in terms of things that work. First, we, we really need to be advocating for evidence-based opioid overdose prevention interventions, specifically naloxone education and distrib distribution within incarcerated settings, but most importantly, treat the disease. We must treat this disease as a medical model um, in order to receive, experience the outcomes that many other communities have. A good example of that is Rhode Island, where they have a unified incarceration facility. Um, they, they were one of the first to offer both methadone and buprenorphine in incarcerated settings, and they were able to reduce overdose deaths by 60% um, when, they, when they rolled out these services. If you're interested in advocacy, there is a, there's a pending legislation within Massachusetts, Senate Bill 1296 and House, 20, House Bill 2067. Please support that. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but we must diagnose and treat substance use disorders before people become homeless or commit crimes. If we do that, we can intervene with evidence-based medical treatment, which has been shown in multiple reproducible studies to reduce the risk of incarceration and reduce the risk of um, overdose, medical complications, and homelessness. So specifically, what does that mean? It means that we must follow the medical evidence. The medical evidence is strong, it's reproducible, and it's now, in the case of methadone, been over 50 years worth of experience. Um, with respect to buprenorphine, it's, it's two decades worth of experience. We should be honest, the legal and criminal justice systems stigmatize and discriminate, discriminate against the two most uh, effective forms of treatment we have. Um, we should talk about that. Um, we know this to be true because in Massachusetts, uh, drug court personnel were specifically and exclusively mandating Vivitrol as a condition of the participation in drug court. Well, the U.S. Attorney's Office just settled this um, with Massachusetts, and um, they, they um, were willing to settle because it's a violation of the, of the ADA. Um, so in brief, you must you know, if you're, if you're an attorney in the state, you must stop stigmatizing methadone and buprenorphine. We need better access to bridge programs like I run here in Weymouth and worked at in Boston. Uh, no appointment necessary type clinics come as you are, no litmus test, no, no um, you know, ability to pay, that kind of stuff. It just means when you're ready, come and get it. We talked a little bit about this, but improving access to harm reduction um, we must support and fund things like the spot in Boston, and clearly we need safe consumption facilities. There are 177 such facilities worldwide. Uh, the list of countries that have this is ever growing, but, but we don't talk about it enough. Canada, Australia, Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, the list goes on, Spain. Um, there's pending legislation. Again, if please support that, please, please ask your legislators to support this. This will re reduce public drug use, reduces overdose mortality, and not surprisingly connects people to treatment when they're ready. People are ready at odd times, odd hours. Treatment is not always available. If we had safe consumption facilities, 
it would help connect people to treatment. And by the way, I know this is a, you know, this people are worried about crime. Well, this has been studied in other countries and in unsanctioned facilities in the US and crime does not increase in the surrounding neighborhoods like the honeypot phenomenon that people talk about. In fact, in some cases, crime was reduced. Mm -hmm. uh, so we need to do that. Um, I'll pause there. I have some other things, but I don't want to take up the whole time. No, thank you so much, Todd. Um, well, you know, music to my ears. Um, it's very frustrating to have people um, in these settings who can't access treatment and want treatment and, um, and just cycle in and out. So thank you so much for that. Um, Carrie, uh, you're next. So how can we shift the narrative um, of substance use disorder as a moral failing rather than a medical condition? And what does that look like within our legal system? There've been some questions in this area already. And then of course we wanna lift up um, the issue of race and racism and all this um, and how does racism manifest in the legal processing and treatment of people with substance use disorder. Sure. Yeah, I think Todd, you know, Todd touched on a lot of the kind of subject matter that we really need to pay attention to in terms of um, centering substance use disorder as a medical illness. Um, I think, unfortunately, in, in the criminal legal system, we are just woefully always behind the science. Um, you know, our, our policies and laws that we are relying on the criminal legal system are coming out of outdated um, beliefs and, and information about substance use disorder and mental illness. Um, you know, we collectively, I suppose, made a choice as a society to adopt those laws at some point. So I fully support, I know Liz is gonna be sending out some, some, policy, some um, legislation um, that could get to these issues. But beyond that, um, I think we've talked about a little bit about, um, you know, personal bias, personal views, um, unfortunately, well, we, we have made some progress, I think, in, in kind of um, moving our understanding in the criminal legal system about mental illness as a medical uh, condition. We're still really stuck in this kind of personal choice, moral failing narrative about substance use disorder in particular. Um, I think part of that is like many of us have actually really personal feelings about substance use disorder. Many of us have been impacted by substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and ourselves, our families, our communities. So it's really hard not to hold personal views about it. I see this in court all the time. So first, I think somebody said, I think Taishan mentioned this, know your own bias. How are you talking to your clients about their addiction? Um, what language are you using? What language are you hearing in court? Um, I think it's it's crucial that that stakeholders, whether you're a defense attorney, prosecutor, probation officer, judge, that you are using um, language that does not put a pejorative or a punitive lens on the client, on the person who is facing the criminal charge. Um, that language is going to set the way that we are thinking about and processing people through the system. Um, so really pay attention to that. So first, know, know the biases. I think um, another piece of that would be, um, unfortunately, there's a lot of this like base misinformation is causing a lot of problematic outcomes for people. Um, ultimately, what's happening here is that 
non-clinicians and non-medical providers are making medical decisions, clinical decisions for people experiencing medical um, crises um, without having any kind of basis, um, like understanding kind of appropriate treatment planning or, or things like this. So, um, I mean, that is just what's happening. That is what's happening is that we are kind of punishing people for, for showing symptoms of disorders and diseases um, people are making decisions about people with disorders and diseases who don't understand kind of um, evidence-based practice. So to whatever extent you can, as a, if you are happen to be a, a lawyer, if you happen to be an advocate in, in the um, legal community, um, that you really need to familiarize yourself with, with what best practices are in addiction treatment so that you can, in a court setting, make that argument based in evidence. Um, you know, ultimately, like I said, we all want public safety. We all want our clients to um, have the best legal outcome. Well, you, you have the opportunity to make the argument that the best legal outcome and the best outcome for public safety would be an evidence-based treatment plan for your client, which also has to make space for the possibility that your client is not really willing or able to engage in the level of treatment that the court might want them to be in. So you have to be really prepared to make that argument for your client. Um, and I think, you know, Todd would say from a medical perspective, it's a totally sound decision for somebody with a medical condition to say, you know what, I'm not ready for that. I don't want to do that treatment right now. I I'm not going to do it. That's their decision. Unfortunately, you know, we're operating in a system where that self-determination is not really an option. So those kind of crucial factors of recovery are not really an option. So to whatever extent you can help make the argument that in fact, allowing your client to self-determine is in effect supporting their recovery process. Um, I would of course suggest that you use social workers on your cases if you're a defense attorney. Um, obviously we have a little bit of an advantage at CPCS staff side because we have staff social workers, but if you happen to be a bar advocate, please go to our website. There's a social services page. You can um, see how you can hire um, a vendor, um, get motions for funds, hire a vendor, have them put together an assessment and a treatment plan. Um, or a letter that advocate. I've certainly advocated for, for treatment plans that um, are much less than what the probation officer, what the, what the prosecutor, what the judge is asking for. Um, and it really comes down to um, relying on the evidence. Um, so I think I'm, I'm kind of up against time, so I will end it there. Yeah, actually, oh, I didn't talk about the racial issue. Can I really briefly talk about yeah, that? Yeah, and I was wondering if you could actually link okay. that to the Very jail briefly, court. I would just like to um, uplift that um, just like we see uh, racial bias play out in kind of every level of the criminal legal system, it plays out here too. So the way that people are um, assessed for substance use disorder also there's a ton of racial bias happening here. Um, when you look at people who are kind of in treatment programs, um, especially residential treatment programs, it is very uneven. Um, when you look at people's records who might have, you know, the very typical kind of misdemeanors that are connected to personal use, 
Um, you might see somebody who is well into their 40s or 50s who is not white, who has never been in treatment and has you know, quite a record by that point, all of which was due to a substance use disorder. And you might have somebody who is white who has been potentially funneled into treatment earlier. So this is a pattern that I see all the time. I think defense practitioners probably see it all the time. Um, the fact of the matter is that black and brown people are not given the same opportunity for treatment um, in Massachusetts or anywhere in this country. So I would really encourage you to um, make sure that clients who are experiencing substance use disorder, who are not white, um, that you're advocating for them just that much harder. You might even have to go back and explain um, if they have a longer record that they were not given the same opportunity for treatment in the past and that has set them off on this other direction. Whereas had they been offered that opportunity, you would be in a different place potentially. Um, so I would really support, you know, paying extra attention there um, and also making sure that you're taking advantage of um, culturally responsive programming for clients. Make yourself aware of culturally responsive programming for clients who are not white. Um, it's not one size fits all in level of care or in kind of cultural appropriateness of care. Thanks, Karen. Okay. Thank you. Um, wonderful. So let's move um, to, on to Liz. And if you can take a minute to describe how access to housing and the shelter system play a role in maintaining the barriers for people struggling with mental health and substance use uh, issues. Yeah, um, I mean, so as we've, uh, a lot of people here have talked about, there's um, not enough housing out there. There's like a lot of, there's, um, this kind of stuff is a huge barrier to housing. Uh, most subsidized housing, um, you can't be an active user and be accepted into. Um, and in state subsidized housing, they is, like the presumption is that if you have used in the last year that you are considered active, right? So you have to over overcome that presumption. Um, there's, uh, you know, you can be denied if you have some sort of record, you know, criminal record, you can be denied if you uh, had an experience with a former landlord that makes them think that you're going to be, you know, problematic for your neighbors. Um, there are many reasons that like uh, these, this population like may have come up against that are then reasons for denial into like permanent housing. Um, and so I think we need more permanent supportive housing, but I also think that oftentimes there is that um, ability for some sort of rebuttal, right? Like some sort of either maybe uh, an ADA request that could be made, or there could be, um, you know, arguments about treatment and, and that people have like, uh, are at a different place in their life than they are now, maybe that you know, they'll have a different type of experience with their tenancy or something like that that you can make to a landlord. Uh, oftentimes, if people are left to them, like on their own to make that argument, they won't win, right, in my experience, because they've already, so, you know, DACD recently said that for their CHAMP program, which is like the online way that you apply for state public housing in Massachusetts, only like 60% like of people don't get through that program, right? Don't even finish their applications. And so like, you have to like get through the program and then you have to like wait for your, you know, 
to come up on the list, right? And then you have to do all of the paperwork that you have to do in order to like get all that stuff in, which are all of which are barriers right, for lots of people. Um, and then you have to, and then maybe you're going to get to the end and they're going to have a conversation with you about maybe why you were evicted the last time or what, why, you know, why this person gave you a bad landlord reference. And then you're going to have to overcome that. And usually the decision makers uh, have their own biases, right? Talking about like racial biases and, and other types of biases, but also, you know, we just don't really believe poor people, right? Like we, I think uh, we just don't, like uh, a lot of our decision makers, if poor people are saying, this is what's happening to me, we don't believe them <laughs> in some way, right? I think that happens on like lots of different levels and lots of different systems. And so, um, one of the things that lawyers do, I think, is sort of loan our privilege to people, right? To be like, um, that that there is like the sort of lawyer thing where we say, well, this is what the rule says and these are all the ways in which they meet that rule and blah, 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 blah. But also because so many people are unrepresented in those contexts, this is, you know, these are not, there's no right to an attorney in these contexts. So because so many people are, are unrepresented, there is a value to having a lawyer be there and be able to like help them hit all of those points, but also to there, there is like this implicit bias in the decision maker that's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, this lawyer has, has decided that this is worthwhile. Um, and I think that that's real. <laughs> like um, I think people who make these decisions with unrepresented people every day, like often make assumptions about what they're saying and whether they're telling the truth and things like that. Um, so I think that that's a big barrier to housing. I think like not having like specifically for these, this population when they're coming up on those lists, right? Um, not having some sort of advocate to go to those meetings with them is a big barrier. Thank you, Liz, it was super helpful. Um, and a few things that you mentioned that Carrie mentioned just before we go to Julie, I want to circle back to Todd for a minute um, to, if you could give us a little more grounding in the process to recovery um, and, just why, what is important for us to understand about relapse and recovery in identifying a lot of the barriers that have been talked about already in the first panel and particularly in this panel? Yeah, so thanks for asking that question. Recovery, everybody has a unique path to recovery. Um, and so we need as a system, whether it be the legal system or the medical system for that matter, to respect patients' autonomy in their ability to find recovery for themselves, but support them through that with evidence-based interventions. So the medical model of the disease of addiction, as others have pointed out, suggests that relapse or return to use may be part of the early recovery process. It is very important to understand that in that in and of itself should not be grounds for returning to incarcerated settings. That is potentially the worst intervention you can do because you are disconnecting the person from their recovery support network, from their medicalized treatment. They may in fact be disconnected from their medical treatments, whether it be methadone or buprenorphine, which we know from the medical evidence is devastating in terms of their risk of getting back into, or their, their, their ability to get back into recovery and not die from this disease before they achieve recovery. So um, hopefully that answers that question. I think, I think it, is, it is a model that may be uncomfortable, I think, for some attorneys. Um, I, I'm happy to kind of walk people through that 
in a more private setting, I'll put my email in the chat for people to reach out to me if they'd like to chat about that uh, offline. Yeah, I would add to that, Todd, thank you. Um, I think, you know, this is something that's really hard to reconcile because um, the timelines that are set out in adult criminal court to engage in treatment and the expectations that are set out to quote unquote, be successful in treatment are completely unreasonable considering the medical model, which is what we understand from the treatment side. So I think for those of us who are advocates in the criminal legal system, all we can do is the best we can do is to make it very clear to decision makers that um, potentially conditions that are being set out for treatment um, are in opposition to kind of the reality of the timeline and expectations that we have here. If we're all agreeing that this person has substance use disorder, then we kind of have to make decisions that support an agreed upon outcome, which is theoretically kind of engaging in treatment. Um, but what we're actually doing is setting up people to fail and to have kind of um, negative outcomes. The, the pending legislation on this state legislation, I personally support. The Massachusetts Society of Addiction Medicine supports. I strongly hope you'll look into that. And, and I think it outlines very nicely how this issue should be addressed from a legal perspective. Hopefully it will be passed. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Carrie. So um, Julie, uh, for you, and then I'm very excited to get to some of the questions that have been posted. So how can we promote collaboration across disciplines in addressing these crises and particularly some of the barriers that have already been identified? Um, well, I think the first thing is, I think that, you know, we've talked a little bit about sort of education and we've talked a lot about um, sort of some of the complexity that folks are um, experiencing um, that lead to homelessness and particularly when substance abuse disorders are involved. But one thing I sort of want to say from the outset is I think it's important not to be overwhelmed by that complexity. Um, I think that we just need to understand that there are programs that are available to individuals that, they, that can be accessed, even though it's hard to do so. And then to just be, just to um, personally embrace a willingness to tackle those on behalf of our clients. And then look for partners. Um, so, you know, we've all been talking about sort of the different ways in which um, folks who are unhoused are experiencing the system, either accessing treatment or who are encountering uh, the criminal legal system and all of those things. Like, I think that we just need to intentionally reach out and talk to each other about the pieces that we can bring um, to, solve the, to solve some of the underlying problems. Um, and the first one is, is, I think the first thing that we need to decide is that homelessness is not inevitable, right? Homelessness is a symptom of uh, systemic failure and we all have, a, we were all, we all own a piece of that system. Um, and we can bring, again, the, our expertise in that area to bear on changing, um, changing outcomes and uh, just completely change this um, perception that we have of homelessness as inevitable. It is not. 
Um, and a piece of that that I do is, you know, there are a lot of public benefits programs. There are a lot of places where people can access resources. And I've taken it upon myself to create a checklist. Um, and I sent it to Rachel to share with all of the um, folks who are here. But it's really going through all of the places in which there are resources available for individuals. So my personal responsibility in this area is to make sure that I'm going through with everybody that I encounter. Um, and encountering them where they are and asking them questions. Because a big challenge here is that people don't always necessarily identify a legal issue as a legal issue. They've been denied, um, you know, um, they've been moved along from a public space that they were in, or they have a criminal record, or um, there are things that are going on. They don't identify necessarily as something that can be fixed. There are some myths about who's eligible for what programs. And so having that checklist for me helps me to make sure I go through all of these, reminds me about the other resources that are available, makes me look for resources as I'm identifying issues for an individual and makes me join into partnerships. So I do think that it is a decision that we all make, one, not to be intimidated by the complexity of some of these problems, and two, to take some ownership of the, um, of the experience and the uh, knowledge that we have and bring it to bear on the problem. Um, and I think that for me also, another piece of this is, is, is uh, just not to be complacent, right, about some of the issues that our clients encounter. So there isn't really a safety net that's accessible to individuals. There's a lot of complexity there. And there are a lot of really bad rules. Um, and so I think that in the ways that I would actually call people to, to, to support some of the things that we've already been talking about. Um, safe use sites, affordable housing, right? So there are places all across the Commonwealth where, where, where folks are trying to build affordable housing that's being resisted locally. So, you know, don't be complacent in the face of that. Take a stand with respect to that. Talk to people in your community and support the building of um, affordable housing. And then when there are um, moves afoot to make legislative change, like getting rid of asset limits um, in benefits programs, increasing grants that are available to individuals, making sure that there are consolidated applications, right? We all benefit from making access to these things easier. Again, put your voice behind that, support that. Um, so that the folks who are doing the work can uh, get the resources to do it, our clients can get the resources that they need, and then we can be talking to each other about where the priorities are as we're fixing, as we're breaking down one barrier at a time. That was great. Thank you so much, Julie, and hopefully all the panelists contribute more in responding to some of the questions as well. Um, I do wonder, you know, there and you mentioned this before, Julie, just as a follow-up to that, is a lot of what we're doing is actually making the state do its job. And I think Liz, Liz spoke to this as well, right? And um, in the state, oftentimes, this legally is actually imposing these barriers to access to services and, and entitlements that other people have. So it's saying it's carving out this exception for people suffering from substance use disorder. Um, in saying, or people who use and are saying, you are not worthy of this benefit because you've made this choice and this sort of the, the dichotomy, the false dichotomy that we talked about earlier. Um, so I'm just wanting us to keep that in mind as we um, kind of answer some of the questions in the chat as well. Or I don't know if you had, if anyone really wanted to respond to that right now. Yeah, go ahead, Tyshawn. Um, kind of and, um, you know, I, I, I got caught up and, um, because I'm just a student, just listening and learning and hearing so much wealth and knowledge and the articulation is, is wonderful. Um, but, you know, 
one thing as a person with lived experience, it's not only just the system on the level of getting people into housing and supporting right. people getting into housing and understanding the system bar systemic barriers of, of those issues, but it's also what happens when people do get housed. One of my major issues was once I got housing, because the, the system is not, like I said, it's not an a, um, organic system, right? So what happens is, is that I ran into a whole lot of issues in which once I got housing, I did not get support through the system, right, to maintain housing, to maintain housing. Because what happens is, is that the system of the, the housing system is expect for the expectation for homeless people is to live, get a minimum wage job, is to um, live on system benefits and not actually to move forward and to grow out into uh, independent, uh, independent lifestyle. So the system rules, regulations, and policies are built upon keeping individuals at a status quo level, or if it's not built upon keeping individuals at a status quo level, the expectations that individuals will not have the, um, the, 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 the wherewithal to move forward from a status quo level, they, they, they enact the policies within the system. And I have struggled so much with that, with that, I digress. No, that was great. Thank you, Tyshawn. Um, okay, we're gonna move to the Q&A and I really welcome folks to um, weave in other things or panelists in particular, other things that you want to make sure that you share. Um, Rachel. Thank you everyone um, for the discussion, it was wonderful. Uh, there's a question that was actually from the first panel, but I think it is really relevant. Um, and folks from the first panel, please feel free to jump in. Um, the question asks, uh, what about members of the community or how can we provide services to members of the community who are fearful of facilities because they don't want to risk involuntary treatment or commitment? This, this question um, has been um, answered as we've been, everybody's been going along. It's, it's just bringing the, the programming to members of the community. If you can't physically bring the programming to the, to the people community, it's making sure that information is widely disseminated in a, in a manner in which that people are, are is repetitiously disseminating the information, consistently disseminating the information so that people become aware. It's savvy, smart um, campaigning. It's savvy using using the mass media in a savvy, smart way in which people can latch on to the information and want and want to be a part. Yeah, yeah. I would um, I would add to that, and I also really agree with Tyshawn that um, you know this idea that you need to give as many options as possible. I I fully support that. You know, it really gives people a lot of choice in in terms of what they think is gonna be the best fit for them. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, involuntary commitment, um, you know, it's a, valid, it's a valid concern. Our laws are set up so that people um, who present with crisis can potentially be civilly committed. Um, and so again, back to the kind of policy advocacy side of things, there is a bill concerning um, changing our section 35 laws, um, which you may want to call your legislators about. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think that, um, 
it is about having a conversation with community members, clients, patients um, about, like Taishan said, what they feel their need is and how to have a conversation with providers and kind of professionals in the field about what their need is. Mm -hmm. um, so giving, giving them the language, empowering them with the language to advocate for themselves in a way that is gonna land them in the type of treatment if they want treatment or housing or whatever it is that they want. Um, I think, you know, we're starting to have kind of as an outcome of this crisis, we're finally starting to see some, some levels of, of, of care, um, low barrier, no barrier that we haven't had before. And that's really been one of the biggest gaps. I think, you know, hearing that, um, you know, in many ways, this crisis wouldn't have happened if we had had these to begin with. Um, but that is a good way for people who maybe are hesitant about engaging with treatment um, to, to start. So those type levels of care, you don't need to, you don't need to be, you know, um, compliant, quote unquote, with, with certain types of programming to, to engage in that level of care. Thank you. Todd, you want to jump in on that too? I would love to. Uh, um, so when I was an addiction fellow, I worked actually in a section 35 facility briefly as part of the fellowship experience. And um, I'll just comment from my firsthand experience there. Um, involuntary treatment of addiction, like any other medical disease, doesn't work. Um, it is not at all based in any of the four principles of medical ethics, which I'm going to briefly, not in a wonky way, review. It's not based on autonomy. It's not based on beneficence because there's no data that I'm aware of to show that involuntary treatment is effective. It, 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 it is in danger of violating the principle of non-maleficence because there is some data for opioid use disorder that it may harm people. And it is not steeped in any element of justice. Um, it, it in, in part is um, also a way for systemic racism to, to be continued in this state um, where um, people who are otherwise not accessing voluntary treatment enter the involuntary treatment mechanism um, it is unfair, unjust, it needs to change. Um, if, if we're even gonna have this civil commitment on the law, on the books, we should never be committing people to incarcerated settings. No crime was committed, but we send people to incarcerated settings for, for no violation of the law. This should outrage everybody. Um, Section 35 is, is, is fraught with problems. Uh, um, for all those reasons. Yes, thank you. And we're gonna be giving you some more information as, as Rachel said in the chat in a minute on that. Um, we do have a couple of other questions. We only have time really barely for one more um, before we wrap up. But I think this is an important one. Um, Rachel, do you wanna introduce the question? Yeah, sure. Um, this question asks, do you blame drug dealers or distributors for contributing to these crises? And would increasing sentences or penalties for those convicted of drug trafficking be part of the solution here or not? Cassie, you want to take that one? Um, absolutely not. You know, a lot of what is happening is like low level sharing um, or sales of substances. And also like it makes people less safe, right? If we're going to criminalize where they're accessing their supply because supply will change. A lot of people have relationships with people who share or sell them substances. 
many people are keeping each other safe in terms of testing or having some knowledge around the supply. Um, and it will, you know, not reduce. Um, and we know that it only makes sort of the poisoned drug supply, um, you know, even more dangerous for people. Carrie or anybody else? Yeah. I would that? agree with, with everything that Cassie just said. I mean, I think, you know, we have a, we have a really kind of warped view of, of how to keep people safe in this country. Unfortunately, um, incarceration is not going to resolve this issue. Um, and, um, you know, the increasing punishment for people who are theoretically selling drugs is actually increasing punishment for people who are using drugs. I mean, many, many, many of the people who are selling drugs are using drugs. Um, so I would say that is not the solution. I think the solution really lies in um, destigmatization and decriminalization. Um, the more access people have, the more um, encouragement people have to engage in either safe use or accessing treatment that makes sense for them, the less we're going to have people processing through the criminal legal system on this. Uh, yeah, I agree with all that. I would just add one thing. I think we'd be remiss not to comment on, on the role of illicitly man manufactured fentanyl in the overdose epidemic and understanding how that has infiltrated our system is is woefully misunderstood or not understood, I should say, um, and and therefore more attention should be placed on that if we are going to make a huge inroads on people dying. So, who is making the illicitly manufactured fentanyl? How does it get in this country? Um, those kinds of interventions um, will matter much more than going after low-level drug dealers. Thank you so much, Todd. So we unfortunately don't have time to get to the other question in the chat, although I think Julie and Liz um, touched upon that issue. So hopefully that was helpful to people. Liz, can I just hop in really quick? Because I wanted yeah. to interject. Um, I think yes. a lot of us have been saying like, rely on the evidence, rely on the evidence. So I just want to make sure that people yes. know where to find the evidence if they are advocating in court um, in particular. Um, so, I mean, there's a ton of publicly available um, research data. If you go to the National Institute for Health website, there's a ton of data there on substance use disorder and mental illness um, as it relates to the criminal legal system. Also, um, the National Institute for Drug Abuse, which I think is part of the National Institute for Health, um, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, SAMHSA has a ton of data. Um, on, and also on evidence-based practice, um, harm reduction models, which I think we also really need to talk about that in our advocacy and how crucial it is for um, uh, public safety. Um, and also Bureau of Substance um, and Alcohol uh, Treatment Services here in Massachusetts, which is part of the BPH, has a lot of stats on Massachusetts um, treatment use, data sets that it could be useful for your legal advocacy, including um, participation in treatment by um, race and ethnicity and um, housing status. Yes, uh, I'll share a resource page two in a minute, which will also go out to folks um, with more information, but thank you so much, uh, Carrie. In terms of next steps, um, 
we do have a coalition that talks about these issues that meets every month. It was sort of dubbed the Mass and Cast Coalition, but we are uh, renaming ourselves as, as uh, this event has hopefully demonstrated it's about much more than Mass and Cast. And if you are interested in that, you can email uh, Rachel, who's going to post um, both an action alert in the chat and her email address if you're interested in joining us for those meetings. Um, and then there is supposed to be a substance use uh, and mental health packages coming out of both the House and the Senate in Massachusetts, and I would definitely pay attention to that and the action alert material that you'll get. Um, there's contact information in there for the chairs of the Mental Health and Substance Use Committee, and that would be a great place to start in terms of pushing for reform in any of these areas. And then I just wanted to point out one other thing, you know, as legal services providers and also legal advocates in the broader community that's listening, um, I think we also need to identify the ways that uh, some of our clients are excluded from access to services um, because of substance use and identify that as you know, stigma, uh, stigmatizing, but also just historically uh, discriminatory in getting past that for all the reasons that you heard today and grounding it in against the evidence and evidence-based practices and that should dictate that those barriers be removed. And as legal advocates, we should push for that. So I wanted to put that out there and then I'm going to share um, a resource page now on the screen so that you all have that. There we go. I'm just gonna move us out of the way. Um, so here again are the, just some, our wonderful uh, panelists from today and then additional resources this will be emailed to you as well, but I just wanted to make sure you know what it looked like so you can look out for it. Um, the action alert will also be linked there and many of our websites so that you can find more information. And, um, and of course, feel free to reach out to myself or any of us for more information. I just wanna thank you all so much for participating today, particularly to our panelists. This was really um, a wonderful discussion and uh, if, I don't know if Dan, you want to say anything else or we want to have any last words, but we have about five minutes left. Um, and I, I really hope if you've come away with anything, it's understanding that criminalization is not the answer to these problems. And uh, it's incumbent upon all of us to uh, seek solutions to the root causes. Yeah, I'll just add my, my um, word of thanks to our esteemed panelists and um, also underscore the extent to which the lines between the criminal law and civil law are very blurry and that those of us who work in civil legal services often find ourselves thinking about and needing to think about more crossover issues with respect um, to the criminal legal system. And I also think vice versa, obviously. So that's one area where we hope this conversation has helped to emphasize um, breaking down barriers when advocates come together and thinking about serving community members. And then the second way is breaking down barriers around discipline. Um, there are more people on our panel who are not lawyers than are or legal advocates. And I think that's really important for us in the legal profession as much as possible to partner and collaborate because these are um, issues that go, they're humanitarian issues. And they're issues that um, in, in most every respect have a medical angle to them. And um, whether it's a social security case related to disability or it's something as basic, not basic because it's easy, but something as seemingly straightforward as getting access to an ID 
or someone facing criminal charges, um, having an appreciation for the mental health, medical health aspects of this um, are crucial. And so it's just humbling to be uh, among so many experts from other fields. And I hope that we can, we can carry that spirit forward. Um, I don't know if there's anything else other than thank yous. Um, and we didn't give anyone a break, didn't really make sense in a Zoom. So maybe the best thing we can do is to um, share a round of applause for our panel and also our attendees for um, terrific engagement and questions. And um, there's some, a lot of great material in the chat um, and links to other um, activities and action alerts and resources. So we'll make sure to circulate that, I think through the BBA to the attendee list. Um, you know, thank, thank you all. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a good Have afternoon. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Yes. Bye. -bye.